Chapter 2 of The Outdoor Girls at the Hostess House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outdoor Girls at the Hostess House by Laura Lee Hope. The Accident. Betty, is she dead? Oh, I hope not, said Betty white-faced and pitying, as she bent over the little old woman. That man ought to be hung. I'll loosen her collar and, Grace, see if you can find some water. Hurry, dear. And while the girls are ministering to the poor little victim of the accident, the opportunity will be taken to tell new readers something about the outdoor girls and their activities and adventures in other volumes of this series. Betty Nelson, gay and fun-loving, possessed the natural gift of leadership, which had earned for her the title of Little Captain. The girls adored her and followed her unquestionably wherever she led. Grace Ford was a graceful, tall, pretty girl with a decided and insatiable fondness for chocolate candy. At the outbreak of the war, or rather, at the time of America's entry into the war, her brother Will had caused her great unhappiness by his failure to enlist with the other boys of her acquaintance. The mystery had been satisfactorily explained later, however, and when the story opens, Will was on his way to make a splendid soldier in America's army of democracy. There was a bit of French blood in Molly Bellette, or Billy, as the girls sometimes called her. Bright black eyes which could, upon occasion, snap fire and a rather unruly temper attested to this French ancestry. The last one of the quartet was Amy Blackford, quiet and retiring, but given to occasional outbursts which never failed to surprise and delight the girls. The mystery which at one time had surrounded her origin had been cleared up some years before by the finding of Henry Blackford, her long-lost brother. How the girls formed the camping and tramp club and the fun they had on their interesting and adventurous tour had been told in the first volume of the series entitled The Outdoor Girls of Deepdale. After this, the girls had many adventures, first at Rainbow Lake, to which they went on another tour, this time in an automobile. From there, they went to a winter camp where they had many varied and exciting experiences on skates and ice boats. Then followed a glorious trip to Florida, where the girls braved many dangers and took thrilling trips into the wilds of the interior. Their next adventure took them to Ocean View and centered about a mysterious box they found in the sand. Then followed that glorious trip to Pine Island. An aunt of Molly Bullett had turned her bungalow over to the outdoor girls for the summer. During their strenuous adventures, the girls had made many friends among the boys and young men of Deepdale, and four of these had asked and been granted permission by the girls to accompany them to Pine Island and pitch their camp in the woods nearby. One of the young men was Alan Washburn, a rising young lawyer and a great admirer of Betty. Another was Will Ford, Grace's brother, and a third was his high school chum, Frank Haley. The fourth, Roy Anderson, had been drawn into the circle chiefly through his admiration for Grace. During that eventful summer on Pond Island, the young people had accidentally discovered a gypsy cave concealed by underbrush and had succeeded not only in rounding up the band of gypsies,
but in recovering several valuable articles that had been stolen from the girls. Their last adventure, related in the volume directly preceding this one, and entitled Outdoor Girls in Army Service, found the girls and boys again at Pine Island, but under very much altered conditions. America had entered the Great War, and all the boys but Will Ford had volunteered. Later, the boys were called to Camp Liberty, some distance from Deepdale, and the girls conceived the plan of opening a hostess house for the benefit of the relatives and friends of the boys. The plan worked out very satisfactorily. While still at Pine Island, the girls and boys had come upon a suspicious-looking man in the woods. Upon finding himself discovered, the man had made his escape, but in his hurry had dropped a letter which the girls found to their disgust was written in code. They decided that the man must have been a German spy. At Camp Liberty, the girls succeeded in rounding up the spy and found, to their surprise, that Will Ford, who was in the Secret Service, had been engaged all that time in tracking him to Earth. Will, having accomplished his mission, immediately enlisted. Now, at the time this story opens, the girls were still at the hostess house and looking forward apprehensively to the time, now imminent, when the boys would be ordered across the sea to fight for the country they loved. I'll go with Grace, volunteered Amy, in answer to Betty's request for water. I don't suppose we can find any, but we'll try. The two girls hurried off, leaving Molly and Betty to loosen the woman's collar and rub her cold hands. Betty, Betty, is she dead? Molly was crying for perhaps the hundredth time when the woman herself answered the question by opening her eyes and looking vacantly about her. Who are you? she queried faintly, struggling to rise. Oh, please don't try to get up just yet, Betty pleaded, looking very sweet and charming in her solicitude. I don't think you're strong enough. But the woman seemed of a different mind and made such a desperate effort to raise herself that Betty had no alternative but to help her to her feet. The girl supported the unsteady little figure while the dim old eyes roved questionably about. I got hurt, she gasped, and then quite suddenly fainted again. Oh, Betty, moaned Molly, her face white with pity. She's hurt worse, much worse, than we thought she was. Oh, what shall we do? There's only one thing to do, replied Betty, trying to hide the tremor in her voice. We'll have to get her to the hospital, and in a hurry. But Grace and Amy, gasped Molly, we can't go without them. We can at least get her into the car, Betty said, indicating the limp little figure in the roadway. You take her feet, Molly, and I'll take her head. We haven't spent all our lives outdoors for nothing. Between them, they succeeded in carrying their burden to the car and settled her gently in the tonneau. Oh, if Grace and Amy would only come. Molly was crying distractedly when the girls themselves burst through the underbrush, crying despairingly that they had not been able to find water, that there was not a house anywhere for miles around. But Betty cut their lamentation short and hurried them into the car. But where do I come in? gasped Grace, as Betty dropped into the back seat beside the little old woman and took the poor unconscious head in her arms. Oh, anywhere, answered Betty indifferently, 
her mind on one object only. On the floor or on the roof or anywhere, only hurry. Now, Molly, dear, drive as you never drove before. Molly obediently threw in the clutch, and the heavy car shot forward, throwing Grace to a seat on the floor, where she fell with more haste than dignity. Nobody noticed her, however, and even a growing bump on her forehead received scant attention. All were too intent upon the matter at hand. At this spot the road was very narrow, and on each side sloped down sharply about ten or twelve feet to the level of the fields. It seemed almost an impossibility to turn the car in that narrow space without precipitating it down either one or the other side of the steep banks. After many fruitless attempts and barely escaped tragedies, however, Molly finally succeeded, and the car was sent flying down the white stretch of road that led to Camp Liberty and the hospital. Oh, I hope we'll get there in time, Amy murmured over and over again, and kept looking at the pathetic little victim. Is she still breathing, Betty? Are you sure? To this, Betty always nodded in the affirmative, her little mouth grimly set, her eyes fixed steadily ahead, as though she would draw their destination nearer to them by the very force of her desire. I wonder, Molly flung back at them from between clenched teeth, what that motorcyclist looked like. I'd like to meet him again, with a firing squad. Why I saw him, came Grace's muffled voice from the floor of the car. So did I, added Amy. So you would recognize him again, Molly demanded eagerly, swerving the car perilously near the edge of the road. Are you sure, added Betty, taking her eyes from the far horizon and regarding Grace intently. Both girls nodded vigorously. His head was down, of course, Amy continued, but I'd know his face in a minute if I saw it again. Eyes close together, long nose. And a little mustache, Grace finished eagerly. The kind Percy Falconer used to wear, and we girls called an eyebrow on the lip. He must have been a thing of beauty, commented Molly. He had the meanest kind of face, said Amy with a little shudder. The kind you wouldn't like to meet on a dark night. I should have judged as much from your description, said Betty dryly. There's one thing about him. We ought to be able to recognize him easily. You talk as though you expected to meet him again, said Amy, looking at her curiously. I do, answered Betty determinedly. Sometime we're going to find that fellow and make him pay for what he's done. Think of it, she added, turning upon them suddenly while her eyes flashed fire. To run down a helpless old woman in the road and then not even stop to find out whether you've killed her or not. We'll find him if we have to search the country for 50 miles around. End of chapter 2